You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, everyone. We are working out technology. This is Addison from Florida State. Give a little hand clap for Addison. So for the sake of time, thank you. I know this is a captive audience. I speak on campuses around the world. We were just at Vanderbilt. We're on our way back through Nashville to Belmont and then on to other places. But um, this is a book, and by the way, I'm not selling anything. Every student gets a free book. Uh, that was one of my uh, asks of my publisher. I said, I don't want to have to sell anything on campus. So it's free if you'd like. Uh, so it's there. In writing this book, the motivation when I was a third-year student in Mississippi State, having grown up going to places like this and not, couldn't get out any quicker. I mean, I wanted to be gone from a church. I grew up to ignore God. My older brother became a hostile atheist, uh, got his master's degree in psychology, and then went on to law school at SMU was at the very top of his class, and my brother's hobby was harassing Christians. So if you said you were a Christian, he tried to get you unbaptized. And so when he found out that I had become a Christian in my third year at Mississippi State, and really it was a very simple encounter. I was trying to be, you know, thought I was an athlete and thought I had, you know, all this, and somebody got in my face and began to challenge me about some of the preconceived ideas I had about God. And third-year student, I came to Christ when my brother found out about it, he tried to talk me out of my faith. So he began to study the Bible to find all the problems with it. Uh, he came home. In fact, he told one of his sweet mates there at SMU, he said, I'm going home to get my little brother out of this born again thing. And I didn't know much, obviously, what I know today, but I knew enough as he began to kind of mock the Bible and mock God and Christianity. I knew enough to kind of pull the loose thread that he had not reconciled in his worldview. He seemed to have a very airtight matrix, an airtight seal against the Christian faith. And when I pulled that little thread, the thing unraveled. And so the weekend that my brother came home to talk me out of my faith, we baptized him. And when he came up out of the water in this swimming pool there in Dallas, he said, you know, you really haven't answered all my questions, but I think I've been asking the wrong question. So that started me on a quest to see the same. In fact, my entire family, my dad was a, a successful executive. He came to Christ. So I saw my entire family changed through what had happened, really through my brother more than me. So years go by, and as I'm traveling to campuses, I start noticing this phenomenon of young people going from high school to college and losing their faith. If you go to University of North Carolina in uh, Chapel Hill, been there many times, you go to Hamilton 100, You've got Bart Ehrman there. I've done this seminar in its full extent at Hamilton 100 where Bart teaches. Bart lost his faith, and he basically hopes that you will come to his class and realize that the Christian faith is just simply not true. A lot of valuable elements, but it's not valid. Uh, so I began to write this book. Uh, basically told a friend of mine, he said, that needs to be a movie. So these movie guys, I'm, I'm not into movies. I didn't. I just basically said, here's what I think needs to happen in terms of expressing what truth is on a college campus so all the other ancillary things were not mine. But uh, basically in, in, in writing this book, 
uh, this, I think that aspect ratio is off, but that's okay. We'll figure. This is the Global Atheist Convention. This was the largest indoor gathering of atheists in history. There have been uh, a lot of outdoor gatherings. Uh, I got to be the creeper at the Atheist Convention, so here I am in the back. And I show this because I really wanted to not give straw man arguments. I wanted to, I have listened to almost everything you can imagine, more than I'd like to admit, to try to understand a skeptical worldview. And so what I'm trying to do today and what I will do here in brief, uh, you'll get a little flyer. I'll be at the University of Kentucky on October 1st uh, doing this in full. I travel with a physicist from Harvard, taught physics at Harvard for 10 years, was a science editor for ABC for 14. He has a PhD in math, astronomy, and physics. So we have an interesting dialogue. And you, if, you're, if you care to hear this in its full, October 1st at Kentucky. Um, 2016, I read this article, and actually I read this in the Washington Post saying that, uh, and you can't see that. Can you move that slide over because the big fact is missing there, okay? It says 0%, 0.0%, really the, the key factor that's missing there, here it comes, 0.0% of Icelanders 25 years or younger, okay? A miracle is happening before our eyes. Uh, <laughs> Okay, 0.0% of Icelanders 25 years or younger believe God created the world. So when I read this, this, I read it in the Washington Post, I called my publisher, HarperCollins, and I said, can I get my book in Icelandic? And they said, we've only had one book ever translated in that language. So they emailed the person who had translated their one book, largest Christian publisher, and within one week he was in my home in Nashville. And uh, he's actually here at Asbury. Just wave your hand. There's August. If you've never met a real Icelander, there he is. So everybody always wants to go to Iceland and, or minimally see Walter Mitty. So there he is. Um, so within about a year, I was at the University of Iceland. There I am. And that's what my book looks like in Icelandic. So we've been there three times engaging this culture that is so bold to say that no one believes in God. But, and I don't say this to kind of stand here and uh, beat my chest, but that, that, that uh, headline is no longer true. Um, this young man signed a card as an atheist, and he basically said, here's what he said on the card. He said, the kindest thing that a believer could do for an unbeliever is to try to save their soul. Thank you for coming to Iceland. I asked him, would you come down and talk to us and put this on camera? So that actual quote, uh, if we ran the video, would be him saying that. One of the things I heard at the Atheist Convention was this whole notion that God of the gaps. In other words, that people of faith just simply insert God in the blanks that we don't understand. It's kind of like this cartoon where you see, you know, then a miracle occurs and then you kind of have something. This is what people think people of faith do. Okay, science the answer to everything. Uh, back up a little bit. Science rests on a philosophical foundation. In other words, there are when you look at the world, you have a set of lenses, you have a glass, glasses that you're looking through, and modern science has a philosophical foundation, meaning that if you disbelieve in materialism, meaning that matter and energy is all there is, then you're going to interpret that it is impossible for anything to exist beyond matter, okay? Richard Dawkins, uh, probably the world's most visible atheist, says that the belief in God is a delusion, uh, I, I assert that it's not a delusion, it's a conclusion. It's based on evidence. Now, what does evidence look like? When people say to me on campuses, and 
Uh, I've traveled three million miles in airplanes. I've had these kind of conversations from Imperial College all the way to Charles Darwin University. When we do this presentation, usually the Q&A lasts as long as the presentation. The normal one's about 90 minutes. I'm giving you the brief version, the drive-through here. But normally our Q&A goes longer uh, than, than even the presentation and then beyond. And people, I'm asking them, look, if you're looking, if you're looking for Steve Jobs, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have found him by breaking down the iPhone. So the creator of the iPhone is not in there. So what are you looking for? What counts as evidence? So what we're looking for is the evidence of an intelligent mind behind the universe, much less knowing what that evidence looks like. I think this is an important thing because people are always asking for proof. Can we have 100% proof? You can't get that even in mathematics. There are truths that you cannot prove. Euclid, Euclid built his entire geometric system on faith in a dimensionless point. Now, if you accept that point, you get all the benefits of the curses depending on how you, well you did in high school geometry. You get all the benefits of geometry. Our Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But how do you prove that? Is that an IQ test? Is it a bench press? Is it a net worth? But yet all of us understand intuitively that there is an equality about us as people, regardless of your social station or education. But how do you prove that? The book of Romans says that since the creation of the world, that basically, short version, we can detect the nature of reality and the nature, not just of reality, but the mind behind the universe and the attributes based on what has been made. So again, we're looking for, as I'm, if, what I would be doing today in, a, in, a, in this little short version is what I said to Icelanders, or what I've said in most, most of my time, I've rarely owned a Christian college, most of it's secular universities, complete secular universities, where most of my crowd does not have any predisposition to faith or know what the God's not dead stuff that I've been a part of is about. So here are the four things I say. Number one, when I'm asked, how do you know there's a God? The first thing I say was there was a beginning. Now from Aristotle to Einstein, they just thought that the universe was eternal. In fact, when Einstein began to, in his relativity equations, he saw that the universe was, was not eternal, that it had a beginning, and he tried to fudge those factors. He inserted a little cheat factor called the cosmological constant and called that his greatest blunder in his life. Fred Hoyle was the one that coined the phrase the Big Bang. He did it on the BBC. Fred Hoyle uh, did it kind of, you know, off the cuff saying, oh, you're talking about this Big Bang? Because Fred Hoyle believed the universe was eternal. And here's what they said. If there was a beginning, then you're letting the divine foot in the door. So you see the picture of the Big Bang and Regardless of what your predisposition is, I just have no reason to not accept the science. But yet what's startling is the universe goes from nothing to something. Now nothing isn't a quantum foam or quantum loop gravity or, or some kind of thing like that. I do this at, I've done this two straight years at Arizona State where Lawrence Krauss has been a professor. He was called by Richard Dawkins the Charles Darwin of physics. And Krauss wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing, and he basically tries to make 
the case that nothing is really something. So you have to have this. Uh, Hawking, in his last book, uh, The Grand Design, page five, he said, because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Now think about this. Because there's a law like gravity, the universe creates itself out of nothing. Well, wait a minute, gravity isn't nothing. So you either accept an eternal law that's inexplicable, that's just there, or an eternal lawgiver. C.S. Lewis said, what's more rational, to believe that matter created mind or that mind created matter? So there was a beginning. Um, it's a simple logical syllogism. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Now someone would stop and say, well, wait a minute, who made God? You see, whether you're an atheist or a theist, you come to a place, I'm not moonwalking, I'm not showcasing off all my talents, but you eventually come back to a brute fact that you must accept. So it, again, it's either going to be a law that you just have to accept or a mind behind the universe, okay? Keep going. I think this is a video, but we won't see this for the sake of time, just skip that. Number two, I say life is no accident. When I was at Charles Darwin University, I said evolution only tells you what happens after you get life. It can't explain where life came from. So we're not talking about the survival of the fittest, we're talking about the arrival of the fittest. And so if you look closer, just keep going. This is a John Lennox quote, a friend of mine from Oxford. Life has to go all the way back to the beginning of the universe because at the beginning of the universe, the universe, like a soundboard that we're trying, see how difficult it is in this room to get everything fixed and little technology. What if this was a universe starter kit? I mean, how much gravity do you put in the universe? You put too much gravity, the universe never gets out of the starting blocks. You put too little gravity, stars, molecules won't form, much less stars and planets and galaxies. But every one of these knobs, from gravity to entropy to strong and weak force, all of these knobs have to be arranged and on the exact number, like a little four, the bike lock there, a little four channel lock, or four digit lock with the little one to 10, you gotta get them all lined up. What if, what if you had a 50 place lock and trillions and trillions and trillions of options and if they all don't land right on the right thing, you do not have life. That's okay, that's the lambda, that's, that's anyway, that's Einstein's field equation. Uh, anyway, DNA, 1950s, Watson and Crick discovered this. In the 1990s, Francis Collins and the Human Genome Project taught us how to read it. I was in Dr. Collins' home when I was writing the book. He, he's a believer. You see, what they found in DNA is information. See, if you're walking down the beach and you see your name written in the sand, you don't think, look at what the waves can do if given enough time. Information always points to intelligence. That's why Drake and Carl Sagan created the SETI project, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And they're searching the skies for information. Now we're sending information out all the time that way. But if, every, but if there's one little message that comes this way, that wasn't from Voyager or something, I'm talking about coming this way, it changes history. 
How would we detect it? Because we see the pattern in information. What if somebody, you ever get a text like I get them all the time that I could tell somebody sat on their phone and I can never figure out how they hit send, but I get this just random letters and I can tell it's nothing. What if somebody texted you this and said, don't tell anyone, but I cheated on the test? One sentence. What's the probability that somebody could randomly construct that? What if you got a text from somebody three billion letters long? That's the information ordered and sequenced in the human genome. And if I talk to you about my friend James Tour from Rice University, who talks about, he says, forget DNA. He says, let's go into the prebiotic world. He said, let's just take carbohydrates and the information in that. He said, and there is no mechanism like a cell or enzymes that are going to bring anything together. He said, how you're supposed to get all that happening in a cave? So life is no accident. Number three, how do I know God's not dead? Number one, there was a beginning. Number two, life is no accident. Number three, good and evil are no illusions, they're real. Sitting, I've, I said I've flown a lot of miles. I was, actually, I was actually on an airplane once, and there was a woman, and I can say this, I'm in the South, there was a woman with what I would call, growing up in Texas, a beehive hairdo. Now where I grew up, the higher the hair, the closer to God. And <laughs> this woman had a beehive hairdo, and she was reading a Bible. I made the mistake of turning to her and saying, so, you're a Christian. She snapped her head at me. She said, no, I believe I am God. Now, to show you how bold I am, I looked at her. I said, don't let me bother you. In a few minutes, it was like I heard a voice saying to me, you're the only one strange enough to talk to this weirdo. I said, if you're God, I got a lot of questions for you. Now, I've had these kind of conversations, but one memorable one was with a philosophy professor who began to tell me that he dismissed the existence of God because of evil. And I think he was seated in seat 14D. And as he began to tell me about why he didn't believe in God, I basically said this to him. I took, actually, I took out, keep going, that. I took out the motion bag and I wrote this on the motion bag. If there is no God, there is no evil. You see, you can't even explain the world we live in without borrowing terms that you have no basis for. You see, if there is no God, as back up, just here we go, Dawkins would say, nature is not cruel and only pitilessly indifferent. We cannot admit that things may neither be good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous. If we're just animals, if there's no difference in me and the dog besides where our dishes are in the kitchen, then basically when an animal kills another animal, it's not a crime scene. That's just what animals do. C.S. Lewis would say, I know a line is crooked, but how I know what a crooked line was unless I knew what a straight line was. You see, there's a moral law inside of us. So people say to me, well, can atheists be good? I say, of course. Can religious people be bad? We know that's true. So why can atheists be good and religious people be bad? Because we're all made in the image of God. I mean, just because I believe in the police and I know what the speed limit is doesn't mean I'm going to slow down. 
So that knowledge just makes me and you more culpable. Dostoevsky would say, if there is no God, all things are permissible. He wrote at a time pre-Bolshevik revolution when the Russian people were throwing off all vestiges of religion and faith. And Dostoevsky was trying to tell them, look, don't throw it. God is different from religion. I lived and worked in Israel and been there so many times I can't count. I can tell you this, Jesus' ministry spent more time dealing with structures that were hardened, that misrepresented God, that became a stumbling block to people seeing God. I tell skeptics all over the world, I don't believe the God, in the God that you don't believe in. You see, the existence of evil doesn't indicate the absence of God from the world but his absence from our lives. Stephen Fry, a British comedian, went on a rant uh, on British television in an interview saying that God was a monster and began to say all these, uh, all these, this string of criticisms and denunciations of God. But then he mentioned a little disease. And really he didn't call the disease by name, but it's onchocerosis, where he says bugs get into the eyes of children and produce blindness. What kind of God would allow that. Then he said, how could God create a world with such evil that's not our fault? Onchocerosis is river blindness. It comes from people dumping sewage into rivers. You know what? We could give every single person on the planet clean water and sanitation for $100 billion a year. That's World Health Organization. $50 billion feeds them. We spend trillions of dollars worldwide on defense protecting each other from one another, much less security, police, and all of that. For a fraction of what we spend on defending each other or to protecting ourselves, we can not only give everyone clean water and eliminate onchocerosis, but the World Health Organization says for every dollar you spend that way, you get $7 back in terms of savings. It actually saves money to help people. But what's wrong with this? What's wrong with us? If I had to summarize the first three questions or the first three statements, there was a beginning. I would ask, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there a universe instead of nothing at all? Number two, life is no accident would be a question. Where did life come from? Number three, when I'm talking about the evidence for God, I say good and evil are real. There's a moral law inside of us that none of us, as Lewis would say it this way, that none of us didn't, none of us invented, nor from which we can escape. The question is, what's wrong with us? Why are we broken? Evil isn't some like radon gas that seeps out of the ground or a fog in Los Angeles. Evil has an address. It has an address. It's in the human heart. And that's why I come to the fourth point of, what, of who can we trust to fix us. Jesus and the resurrection. If I had the time, I would talk about, go to the next one, about the facts of history. These are facts of history that even atheists and skeptical scholars would admit are true. If you didn't have a Bible, this is what you could know. That Jesus died by crucifixion. That his tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Skeptics will say the disciples claim Jesus appeared to them, but they don't believe he appeared. They just thought it was kind of like at the end of Star Wars, you know, Obi-Wan, Yoda, no, there's Jesus. Kind of forced ghost, kind of an apparition or a hallucination. 
Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses all at one time. The resurrection proclaimed early. It started in the very place where it would have been easiest to disprove, in Jerusalem. In 2010, I believe, it was the largest oil disaster in U.S. history. It was out off the Gulf of Mexico, 200,000 gallons of oil dumping into the Gulf for 89 straight days. You could try to clean up the mess, but ultimately you had to stop it at its source. The gospel goes to the very source of the problem. I've got two of my sons here who travel with me. I took them to a Laker game one day in New Orleans, and as I'm going down, I see this guy that's a psychic, and he looked kind of like a, you know, he didn't look like just a guy that was trying to, he looked like a young kind of hip psychic. So I told my boys are here, I said, y'all stand over here, I'm going to talk to this guy. No, I'm not going to get my palm red, I'm going to talk to him about Jesus. So I sat down and I began to, I, I teach a little principle called salt. You start a conversation, you ask questions, and then really listen to people before you talk. Most Christians do the talk method. They start talking, they argue, they get louder, and then they kick you. So I started asking the guy the question, so I said, um, tell me how you became a skeptic. I said, is, this like, is there like an internet class? Is there a school? I've just never seen any promotional material, a good, great job, benefits, good hours, be a psychic. And he looked at me, he said, he said no, he said, uh, I was a Christian. And he said, I started seeking the power of God and I couldn't find it. So he said, I, he'd gone to some place in Florida where there was this revival and it didn't hit him. So he said, I got into voodoo. He said, but voodoo was kind of scary. And he said, um, I got into palm reading because there's more of a science to it. And I just, I, I determine when I talk to people, if I don't even get a chance to talk to you, I'm going to thoroughly listen to you. About 10, 12 minutes into it, he looked at me and he said, okay, you tell me why you do what you do, because I told him that I was a minister. I looked at him, I said, Miles, I said, I preach the gospel to people. Because the gospel is the only thing on this planet that can show someone what's really wrong with them. I said, my wife was sick. We didn't know what was wrong with her. We went to Israel and a little doctor in Adassa Hospital diagnosed a rare condition that my wife had. And that knowledge absolutely saved us. I said, the gospel gives us the exact problem of what's wrong in the human soul. But it doesn't just leave us there. It gives us a solution. When I was in a meeting like this, much smaller, and somebody said some of these kinds of things to me, I was probably the only one in the room that prayed a prayer that said, this is what I want. So I'm going to pray. And whoever you are, maybe you believe this, but you've been shaken. I have students come up to me, and they, they'll get a book, and they'll come up, and they don't They've not been to church. They'll, they'll look at me and they'll kind of look at the book and they'll look at me and they'll go, they go, I have been your enemy, but I think I'm on your team now. That's kind of their own little testifi testifying that something's happened. I mean, getting somebody to change teams from skepticism to faith is almost like saying a Democrat's going to become a Republican or an Alabama fan's going to pull for Tennessee or whatever your team is. We have these kind of pre 
these kind of locked in presuppositions and commitments. So I'm going to pray. If you'd like to pray with me, then join quietly as I pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this opportunity to speak to people whose lives are at definitely a critical place where decisions are being made that will last forever. Decisions about what is reality, what is truth. Is the Christian faith true? Is there a God? Is Christ real? And was Christ the expression of that God? The gospel is simply that you became a man and you died. You lived the life we should have lived. You died the death we should have died. And your resurrection verified your identity. It's the evidence. It's, everything is weighted on that. The, listen while you're praying. The basis of the Christian faith is not whether you believe the Bible is inerrant. I believe in the Bible as the Word of God, but the Bible itself says that it's Christ's resurrection that's the foundation, something that happened in history. When I understood that, then it didn't matter all my questions about all the things that I couldn't reconcile. I said, I'm putting my faith in that one moment that Christ was raised from the dead, and because he's been raised from the dead, he can raise me up into a new life. Just say, Jesus, I believe you. Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you. I want to be your follower in my generation. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for your, the evidence you gave in history by being raised from the dead. Amen. There's a, a little text here. As you leave, you'll get a flyer. Um, if you'd like to connect with us, if you have questions, we have kind of a people from all over the world that connect with us, and we've got a great staff to help you, push you to the things you need. And with that, thank you.